0: Welcome back to the Enneagram Journey. Many listeners have emailed and um, posted questions for me uh, about the Enneagram and about their number and about relationships and all kinds of things. My favorite way to teach over the years has been to answer questions, still is. So I'm excited to offer today's podcast and we'll continue to do this in the future, answering some of the questions that you sent in. I've asked my husband, Joe, to join me and my daughter Joey. Between the three of us we have about 70 years of Enneagram work on board. We are from three different stances. Joe is from the withdrawing stance, Joey's from the aggressive stance, and I'm from the dependent stance. And we're hopeful that our conversation around your questions and that our answers will be an offering that will make your life better. I'm really excited about today's podcast because I'm with my husband and my oldest child. Giuseppe, I'm going to let you introduce yourself, but I should just say that to some people you're Joe Stabile, to some people you're Reverend Joe Stabile, to me you're Giuseppe, but my audience knows you in all of those forms, so who do you want to be today?
1: I guess I just want to be the person who pushed the lawnmower when you were in bed waiting <laughs> to bring you coffee. For anybody who's heard you teach Know Your Number, that's my moniker, so (laughs) I guess I'll just go with that. Uh, Apart from that, I happen to be uh, on staff at Holland Park United Methodist Church as the Director of Congregational Care.
0: And uh, Joey, everybody knows you as, I hope, Joey first and then an eight, but it might be that they know you as Eight Joey or Joey eight. I know you as far more than that because you're my firstborn and um, I'm so excited that we're getting to do this today. Why don't you tell people what you want them to know that your mother doesn't tell them?
2: Well, I think um, it's indicative of being an 8 that I'm pretty okay with everything that you've told people about me. I, I would like to say that I think this is absolutely transformative work and I'm glad to be a part of it. It has, in the 20 years that I've known it, it's help just be a better mother, a better wife, um, a better employee, and a better friend.
0: So on one personal note, do you two remember that trip to Colorado to Lake City years ago when we were listening to cassette tapes of the Enneagram figuring out everybody's number? And Joe, you and I already knew our numbers, and Joey heard her number, and it was like everybody in the car just turned and looked at her. <laughs> so you, 20 years ago. Absolutely. Amy.
2: And, and that's, I think, the magic of the Enneagram, really. Yeah,
0: me too. Um, one of the things that happens whenever I'm teaching on the road is that people really enjoy the Q&A time. And I want to start by saying, I think we want to use the language questions and responses because there are so many questions in Enneagram wisdom that don't have a definite answer, but that have a response. So we're all three going to respond to questions, and I think we'll get to do that ongoing in times to come. So I would encourage all of you to continue to go to the Enneagram journey and send us your questions. I'm going to let the two of you respond first to this question so that I don't get too whipped up too early in the podcast. Speak to taking an Enneagram test, some advice for people still unsure about their number after a long time.
1: I'm happy to start with that because in Life of the Trinity Ministries, early on, uh, Suzanne and I often held, well, we did for 10 years, we held an Institute for Spiritual Formation. And as part of the Institute for Spiritual Formation, we tried to use the Enneagram test early on when people uh, had joined us for one of the sessions. And then a session or two later, we came back and had them learn their Enneagram number by Suzanne teaching the Know Your Number, which she does so well and has for so many years. And what we learned and discovered in that process was that the Enneagram test that they took was wrong uh, probably 62% of the time because the Enneagram test was more geared towards people learning their number based on their behavior. And as we have all come to learn, your Enneagram number is based more on your motivation than on the behavior, because we all seldom do, I mean, mostly do the same kinds of behavior, but for different reasons, we're motivated differently. So we have found that the Enneagram test was not a good indicator in the work we were doing of someone's Enneagram number compared to listening to a person teach, know your number with, as Suzanne does with stories and, um, the expressions of each number explained differently. One
0: of the things that's happened in recent months is Joey, you've started teaching and not, not everybody knows that probably. And, I always wondered if any of you ever were interested in Enneagram work, if you would work with me and if you would change things. And I would have thought that if anybody was gonna make Know Your Number shorter, get rid of the whole long eight-hour day, find a way to do it that was quicker, I thought it would be you. And can you talk about why you haven't done that?
2: Absolutely. So I I have been... I've had the great pleasure of being able to, to teach more and more uh, with Enneagram, and while I haven't made it shorter, because I do find it to be so transformative and so important, I I have put my own spin on it, which is probably not surprising. And the reason I put my spin on it, what I came in with, um, was was more personal. I have found stance work to be the most important and transformative work I've done personally, and. Um, when I approach a day with, with a group of people, large or small, who don't yet know their number, I thought it might be good to, to get them into a stance first rather than, um, start right into the numbers in in the hopes that they would have buy-in earlier in the day. And I've done that for about a year now. And I do like that. What I found in my most recent, uh, teaching Uh, with a group in Houston is a gentleman who had taken a written indicator, scored high in two numbers in the same stance, and once he heard me teach know your number, he actually identified most and found himself with the third number in the stance. And so as I mentioned to you, while I'm finding with this gentleman in particular as another example, it is not accurate, it might help people find their stance great
0: I want to make sure that we're have everybody's following with us cuz not everybody's done stance work so quickly let me just say that triads are determined by which of the three centers of intelligence is dominant thinking feeling or doing stances are determined by which is repressed thinking feeling or doing and in life in the Trinity ministries we highly recommend stance work So I want to speak to the second part of the question, which had to do with being unsure about your number for a long period of time. And I actually think that the more information you take in, the less likely you are to get your number. The more sources you go to can be helpful after you know your number. But when you're trying to figure out your number, there is a, a necessary time of less is more. And so people who take a test and then hear it taught orally and then they aren't sure what their number is, so they take another test or another indicator or they read another book and I think it gets to be too much. So my recommendation for the person who asked this and anybody else who's interested is that you just step back and observe yourself for about a month. And you might jot down things that you notice about yourself and then Then go back and listen to it taught orally. Uh, Go to a workshop or get it recorded. And I think you'll be able to probably figure out your number. The other place to start is always eliminate the numbers that you know you're not. And that leaves you with uh, less to try to figure out. Do either one of you want to add to that?
1: I think that's true. The other indicator for me was where you find yourself trying to figure out your number. uh, And you seem to... Always teach people that how you act at home. If, if you're looking at how you act where you're at work, uh, it might be an entirely different way of, of presenting yourself. So you would think yourself it is, as a different number, perhaps.
0: That's a good point. And think about when you were 20. When we teach on college campuses, they get their number really quick. Really, really quick. All right, let's look at the second question. Talk about wings and their importance in the Enneagram. A lot of people online declare themselves as a 4 with a 5 wing or a 9 with a 1 wing, and that's usually presented as 9W1 or 4W5. I want to start, and then you two can join in, by saying that you both know that I started studying the Enneagram so long ago that I have pretty much read, I would say, at least 90% of what's been published. And you know, if you if you take the '60s or so books that I kept, and we went into my office and looked through them, we wouldn't find more than, in 60 books, I don't think we'd find more than 180 or 200 pages on wings. I think people want them to be more important than they are. I think there are a couple of places where they're important, but... The goal in my way of looking at the Enneagram in terms of wings, with a couple of exceptions, is that they offer you balance. And the time when it's most important to understand that the number on either side of your number are your wings is when you're trying to learn your number because you sometimes have a lot of behavior if you have a big wing in uh, that side.
1: I tend to agree with you that I don't think wings are all that important. And I do think that, although I've only looked at some Enneagram tests, I think some of the tests give you that as a result—that you're a nine with this a one wing, or you're a two with a three wing, or whatever it is. I I don't feel like they have a huge influence in my life. Uh, obviously, when it comes to the dishwasher, my one wing kicks in, <laughs> but uh, I. I think wings are not as important as people would like them to be. I think it's really important to have a firm grasp of yourself in your own number, and whether you're healthy or average or unhealthy within your own number. I think is much more important.
0: You're still, an, if if you're a nine, you're a nine no matter what wing you have. And a nine with a one wing and a nine with an eight wing are both nines on the enneagram. It's a nine. You're a nine, and you have this extra little thing that colors some of your behavior and none of your motivation. None of your motivation is affected by wings. This one is uh, a question I get asked a lot. Several people ask us questions about combining Myers-Briggs results with Enneagram results. And I'm the first to say that I think all of our tests or all of the opportunities that we have made available to us to understand ourselves better have value. I I don't think we should get rid of any of them, and I don't think we should try to make any of them fit with the others. I think they all stand alone. So I'm an ENFJ on Myers-Briggs, and I don't really have any idea how I would apply that to the fact that I'm a two on the Enneagram. Some pieces would fit, but others would not.
1: The key difference for me is I never felt like I could do anything to be more healthy in Myers-Briggs. It didn't offer me any tools to to be better than the box that it put me in. I felt the same thing with the Berkman. It it described me well in, in that situation or circumstance, but it didn't give me any uh, opportunities or um, tools to be different or to behave different or to act differently in that regard. And that's the big difference I see with the Enneagram. The Enneagram gives to, to me, particularly in the stance work, which we mentioned earlier, uh, an opportunity to be more healthy in my number and more healthy in my behavior in dealing with other people, more healthy in my own self understanding of who I am and why I am and why I do what I do. I feel like I have tools with the Enneagram to uh, improve myself in some really concrete ways that the others don't offer me.
0: It's interesting that you bring that up because one of the things I've been anxious to talk with you about for our listeners is being a female eight. I have a lot of tenderness around your female apeness. And uh, I think that's because maybe mothers of female eights know their tender side and know how much they've struggled with being so misunderstood. So we haven't had a female eight on the show yet. And um, this is a chance for you to start talking about some things that I'm sure we've both been waiting for you to talk about for a long time. Uh, We were asked to talk about the struggle of a female eight struggling with being themselves and being accepted, struggling with dating, and struggling with people not understanding them.
2: Okay, that's a lot. And it's all well said because I think female eights struggle in all of those ways. And the caveat to that is they're not struggling in the moment. They struggle with people's reactions to them. don't even realize their struggle that's that's not where they feel like they're struggling so i would say being a female eight um, it has definitely has its difficulties in the way i am received by others i'm very happy being a female eight i would say that um one of the one of the newest pieces within the last maybe two years that I've come to um, is speaking to what I felt was the betrayal piece for AIDS, mm-hmm. and and I've shared this with you. And when I've when I've taught now, um, that I feel betrayed most when people have an encounter with me, and they walk away from that encounter, making a judgment about me, and they they haven't taken the time to know me, and they then. Um, feed that judgment, most likely with emotions and have an idea about who I am without ever even really approaching me or getting to know me. Mm -hmm. Now that's, while that is so true and I think true for a lot of female eights, what the Enneagram has offered me and learning and growing in the last two decades is, I don't make it easy to approach me. And that's mine to learn and to understand about myself as well. And so, uh, in teaching that to others and to female eights, I just recently had a question uh, when I was teaching from a female eight who said, What are you, she asked me, What what do we do then? What should we do when uh, after that happens? Because she identified with that betrayal piece as I'm sure many female will and, and wanted to know how we allow someone to come back around and my response was that um, I don't know that it's ours to go find that person because we'd be finding a lot of people if we were to to circle back around to the people who have who have walked away from us uh, encounters with us mm-hmm. and felt that way but I did offer that if she was in a professional or personal setting um, paired with that person again or found herself in an encounter with that person that it was hers to do to allow that person give them some grace in the making the judgment they made first. Mm-hmm. And that's hard for us and I believe it is so hard for female aides to have a capacity for much less compassion for people who are intimidated by us because I don't believe eights, female or male, are ever intimidated.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, um, I've we've had a lot of conversations about you being an eight and me being a two and about how easy it is to misunderstand a female eight. One of the things I've come to lately is that I think the misunderstanding leads some people into dualistic thought about that behavior, right and wrong about that behavior. And you know, being an unhealthy, cloying, schmoozing two is just as disconcerting for other people as being an aggressive eight. It's just that twos and more feeling types pick it up quicker and back up and then kind of try to cover and I think that has to do maybe with orientation to time. So we'll talk about that on another podcast. But I think whether or not you're looking
2: ahead or in the present moment or looking back
0: has a lot to do
2: with that. I agree for sure. And and being an eight and having my orientation to time be the future. I think one of the other ways that if, if you're going to look at people not understanding us or um, being accepted, eights. Love to come together for a goal Mm. and love to be on a team and love to support others. We're relational in that sense. We are not relational uh, in the sense of one-on-one if it doesn't have a genuine purpose.
0: That's very interesting because we've talked a lot about if you want to get to know an eight, then do a project side by side with an eight, right? So I want to come back and talk to you about dating, but before about an eight dating, because I don't think anybody's ever asked us that question. Mm -hmm. But before we do that, I want to talk to your daddy about what, what it's like for you as a nine to be in a relationship with your oldest child who's a female eight.
1: It's always been challenging because as a nine who certainly didn't never wanted conflict and was willing to avoid conflict. I always sought the opportunities, I think, to avoid being in a conflictual situation with her, although there are times when we've had our conflicts over the years.
0: You two kind of have a thing, though. You know, you kind of have a thing that doesn't have a lot of conflict around That's
1: that. it. That's true. It That is true. But the, f- the few times when we had, I've had to step up my-ness uh-huh. ring mm-hmm. and, and meet her head on, mm-hmm. uh, which she seemed to always appreciate or respect anyway. Mm-hmm. And it, I think it enabled us to work through some of those times. Uh-huh. But there have not been very many of them, you know you know, I think she's just incredibly wonderful and um, oftentimes turn to her for answers because she's smart and she has them.
0: Well, you know, that brings me to something that I talked about a little bit. And that is that uh, our youngest came home after living out of state for about three years, I guess. And we were at dinner with him. Uh, His name is BJ. And we were at dinner with BJ and... (laughs) He, it was that dinner where he came back and told us that we really weren't so dumb after yes. all and that we'd done good by him and that we were good parents and all that. And then he kind of had this different countenance about him. And he said, but I, I do have to tell you that when, when I'm really in trouble or when I'm really scared about something, I call Joey. And I'll never forget, Joey, you looking right at him and saying, we all do. We all
1: do. Exactly.
0: <laughs> and so that brings me to Joey. What does it feel like for you when people say, Don't be all that until they want you to be all that. And then they say, how should I handle this? What's the answer to this? Does that
2: affect you? I would say it affected me a lot more when I was younger Mm -hmm. and not knowing the Enneagram. Mm -hmm. Because what the Enneagram has taught me is that I can be that source of strength and also allow some tenderness. Mm-hmm. I've said this before, and it's resonated with eights. Um, if I, you, and you can all speak to, you can both speak to it when we are in a family gathering. Mm-hmm. I gravitate toward, and they to me, the children. Right. That's where I love spending my time. I, I think there's there's a real innocence and a genuineness to those interactions, and I think that eights find themselves in that situation a lot. I think it would surprise people that eight socially feel a little awkward. Yep. Yep. We handle it well. We don't really show it. Mm-hmm. But it's almost like we've had on board for our whole life that we know we don't quite fit in mm-hmm. in that way. Mm-hmm. And so then when you add offending someone that you didn't mean to offend... On top of that, mm-hmm. eights are um, hesitant to jump into connection with you. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Why? Uh, for us, authenticity is big mm-hmm. and we read that pretty quickly too. And if it's not going, if that's not going to be the end game, mm-hmm. then it it's not worth our time. Oh, got it. Got it. Okay, you want to talk a little bit about dating?
0: Joe, can you stand it if she talks a little bit about dating? Well, uh,
1: yeah, I ran off several of her dates. Right, very, yeah,
2: <laughs> definitely, definitely. I would say that, um, well, I have said it. I said it to Billy just the other day. Billy and I, this month, have been together. We started dating 20 years ago. Unbelievable. And we've been married 15 years now. And we were out to dinner the other night and saw two people in their, you know, mid-20s dating. And we just looked at each other and said, oh, my gosh, I wouldn't want to do that for a million dollars. And I think it's especially difficult to be a female 8 and date later in life because most likely that female 8, after experiencing leadership and accolades in in the education years is now in a position at work where they're looked to for their strength mm-hmm. and they're applauded for their strength you put on board they probably have that position in their families that is so intimidating probably for any male um, in a dating situation to to step up and meet that eight in her strength mm-hmm. And I think that's something that I wish everyone in the Enneagram could know is that we want you, while we don't invite it, we want you to meet us with your strength. Mm -hmm. And so I would say your first date needs to be going to an Enneagram conference. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. That's good.
1: I would just add to that, that from the perspective of the work that I do sometimes in teaching male spirituality and male work, that young men today coming out of college situations are are putting off their time of commitment to one person, to a job, to where they want to live much later and later in life than young women coming out of college today. So I think it's even harder probably for young eight women coming out of college to find the man who is going to match them with energy and commitment that they have uh, early on in, a, in their married kind of situation, which, which seems to make dating a more difficult thing for, for young women eights, I think.
0: I think so too. Um, all right, let's go to another question. We've had several that are kind of like it, but we have one that's really specific. How can a five work on doing something that they don't understand? What advice might you have for a five undergoing counseling, particularly for childhood trauma manifesting issues in adulthood? EMDR therapy has been recommended, but I have a really hard time because I don't understand how and why it works or what I'm supposed to be doing in the midst of process. I have a hard time connecting to or sitting in my feelings during therapy. The typical advice is to let go and that's not terribly helpful. On the other hand, learning about my tendencies as a five has been very eye-opening as I continue on the journey. I'm going to start with that and say uh, a few words about balancing, thinking, feeling, and doing. I want to do this as succinctly as I can, but the goal in Enneagram work is for us to use each of those centers of intelligence for what they're intended for. And you can't think your feelings, um, there that's a messy place, and fives have a tendency to want to think their feelings. Culturally, right now, we're in a place where we talk about what do you feel and what do you think as if those are equal words, as if they mean the same thing, and they absolutely do not. So, to the specific question about EMDR therapy and feelings and Um, how to deal with something you don't understand. I think if you will do some triad work, um, which is available through our ministry that's recorded, but, but you can get it other places, I'm sure. If you do some triad work, I think you'll get to a place where you understand that you need to separate thinking and feeling and doing in order to be fully available to what different kinds of therapy have to offer you. And particularly for a five, maybe EMDR, as I understand it, could be very helpful in terms of moving you from your head to your heart. And you're looking at head and doing something here. You want to do something about what you understand in your head, and that leaves out feelings. It's hard to it's hard to balance the all three. It's uh, five, sixes, and sevens are thinking dominant. Eight, nines, and ones are doing dominant, and twos, threes, and fours are feeling dominant. And it's hard. I'm not good at thinking sometimes. It's hard for me to pull that up when I need to. other thing I want to say is that I don't think we've been taught to live with mystery well. And you know, really, at the end of the day, the Enneagram is mystery. We don't understand how we all fall into one of nine categories when there are people who are our number who are completely different from us, but they're still our number, And I think sometimes we just have to hold the mystery that some things work, whether or not we understand it and whether or not we can explain it.
1: One of the things you and I both teach, Suze, is that uh, in terms of spiritual growth and spiritual formation, that we feel like everybody ought to have a good therapist and a good spiritual director. And as uh, a nine on the Enneagram who is... In the same stance as a four and a five in terms of the withdrawing stance and the same orientation, uh, to the past, I think it's extraordinarily admirable of whoever this person is that, that they're doing the work with a therapist, whether they understand it or don't. And I would strongly encourage them to continue that work, particularly in dealing with issues that come up from the past childhood trauma or whatever, as a way of just becoming more and more healthy to do that means we have to take a step in faith and and trust that the therapist knows what they're doing by inviting us to do EMDR or the spiritual director is knows what they're doing in leading us to the next step of, of spiritual growth and spiritual formation, all of which will help them become more whole and uh, healthier, at least within their number as a five.
0: And what would you say about her reference or his reference to letting go?
1: All great spirituality is about letting go. And that, I say that as a pastor in the Christian context but it, whether you're talking about Christian or Muslim or Jewish or Hindu or whatever faith belief all all great spirituality teachers will say that we have to be willing to let go of those things that are not enhancing our life or those things that we hold on to that are not allowing us to truly become the people that we were called and created to be so um, that's a that's a spiritual leap of faith that we have to take
0: how would you knowing what you know about the enneagram encourage a five to let go
2: At, well i was actually thinking that i think a five i i do as an eight i see and can resonate with fives, with that being able to set emotions aside, mm-hmm. and I've always respected that about eight. I'm about fives. I feel like they, um, they they truly can see situations objectively because they do set their emotions aside. And I was thinking to myself while Dad was talking that, for this person, they have a real gift on board, because even through therapy, they can objectively see that what happened to them, um, they can look at that without emotions in the absence of emotions. And I, in that sense, I as an eight would get uh, completely swept away with the injustice of it.
0: That's
2: good. But a five in the same vein can can do this without getting caught up in the injustice and see that just as objectively that though they don't have those ties anymore, so that there's a, a healthier way to move forward mm-hmm. without getting drowning in emotions.
0: So what you're saying, I think, is fives already know how to let go, yes, Yes, and that this person just needs to connect with that.
2: Yes. Yeah.
1: I would say they need to connect to an opportunity, where they can connect to to feelings, but someone else's feelings on a healthy level.
0: Oh, that's interesting. So they don't have to start by connecting to their own feelings. No,
1: don't have to start by connecting to their own. So I would say find uh, a daycare center, find a place that is helping children, uh, adoptive children or abandoned children or, or street children uh, in some way to volunteer and connect with, with what they're experiencing and what they're feeling Mm. in, in their lives as a, as a practice and, you know, and find a place to volunteer with obviously with some boundaries around it, because for the five, there's a limited amount of energy. So
0: for all of the listeners to the podcast, as we continue to answer questions in the future and today, it's important that you know that Joe will uh, almost always give you a spiritual practice. To get just an easy two or three sentence answer that fixes everything from him, that doesn't happen very often. So um, it's always going to be a practice that makes you bigger in, uh, in your understanding of the world and your place in it. How can fives and nines bring or have more energy when it's required? There are two examples here. One is a nine working on addressing conflict, but then being drained from it. And um, I'm going to have you all work with that one, and then I'm going to answer the other example.
1: Well, what we do know about nines is they have the least amount of energy of anybody on the Enneagram because we spend all of our time cautiously looking for where there is conflict, whether externally or internally. We don't want to walk into a conflictual situation. So we're looking cautiously on the outside for that. And we're always being careful about what we're going to say or what we're going to do because we don't want it to cause conflict. So we are sort of limited in terms of conflict. And we seek to avoid it at all costs. (laughs) Uh, But there are times when we do have to address conflict, times when we do have to take on a situation that is conflictual and come up with responsible and, and healthy answers to that situation. For me, then what the nine has to do is meet that situation with whatever energy it takes to resolve and answer the, the, the conflictual circumstances. But then be willing to, which is also very difficult for a nine, be willing to ask for what they need in order to be filled back up again, which is usually going to be to do something they want to do or go someplace they need to go for themselves. But most likely would be afraid to ask for it for fear it too would cause conflict. So like
0: just generally speaking, if you had a big conflictual staff problem at the church and you uh, kind of we're preparing for that, and then you dealt with the problem, and then you felt like your energy was drained, and then you come home and say to me, you know, I think I'd like to go over to Fort Worth with John and ride horses on our day off this week.
1: Totally hypothetical. Totally. Totally, completely hypothetical. Because you would never want that. Because would never want that. And to- then
0: you would think, if I asked to be gone all day on my day off to ride horses, that's going to cause conflict. Potentially.
1: Po- potentially. hypothetical situation could certainly work.
0: So since it didn't always work with four children in our life, for you to be able to recharge that way after conflict, it wouldn't always work now. No. So what does one do?
1: I, I think they have to find they have to find the the things that that fill them back up with the people that they get filled with. And yeah, so would you, sense.
0: would you say that it would be important not to have an expectation that you're not going to be drained after conflict?
1: I, that would be very important because you're going to be drained after conflict. Yeah.
0: Every time? Does every, it happen every time?
1: Just about. Yeah. Okay. Just about every single time. So I think you have to have, I say this in terms of spiritual direction, people have to have a. Uh, a bag full of spiritual practices and spiritual disciplines right. that they can use at different times. So I think you have to also have a bag full of things that will energize you. And it's not going to be the same one. It's not going to be the maybe the one you like the most mm-hmm. or the one that seeks the most time. It, But there could be something, you know, whether it's going to a movie or watching television or taking a nap or reading a book mm-hmm. or whatever it is that takes you away from the conflictual situation that allows you to be filled back up.
0: Okay. What's your experience with Billy, Joey?
2: I would say with Billy, um, you know, nines, it's, it's often said and taught in Enneagram that, that sixes doubt themselves, but nines self-question. <laughs> and I've found that when Billy is really uh, working internally on something that he thinks might cause some conflict – he has a lot of questions and going through those questions with him, having that conversation where he does, he naturally sees both sides to everything mm-hmm. and nines, especially nines who are are really doing some work, um, doing some self work, really watching themselves mm-hmm. and, and, um, trying to be healthier in their number, they, uh, they see both sides, they, they will get to the right answer and an answer that they're comfortable with. It helps to have someone who isn't worried about conflict to who can look at that a little more objectively mm-hmm. with them. And when we have those conversations, all I'm doing is supporting him in the thoughts he already has so that when he arrives at that thought after talking it out with me, it feels less conflictual for him.
0: Mm, that's good. And that's an advantage that you and Billy have as an eight and a nine that Dad and I don't have as a two and a nine, because we're both other references. Yes, exactly. So I'm not terribly helpful. I, I worry about conflict with other people. not as much as you do, but I mm-hmm. do worry, too. OK, I want to answer a, a single mother who is a five with three kids. How can uh, she bring more you? In- We've run out of time today, but we have more questions and responses. Join us in coming weeks for part two. Until next time, practice compassion. I hope you'll join me in Edmond, Oklahoma on February 23rd and 24th for a Know Your Number conference. You can get more information at lifeinthetrinityministry.com about registration and about the event. It's a good opportunity for you to bring a friend to a Know Your Number workshop because it's changed your life and you want to offer it to them. And it's a great way for you to come listen for the number you go to in stress and the number you go to in security. Hope I see you there.
1: The Enneagram Journey podcast is produced by Life in the Trinity Ministry. Music is provided by Solve Lighthouse. Professional photography is courtesy of Courtney Perry. We invite you to visit TheEnneagramJourney.org for more information, and we welcome your questions and comments. Thank you for being with us today.